How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I am Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 115. 15? Is it 15? Dude, it's 20. Man, I am so off. You were. I hope you didn't look up a 2015 quote just then. <laughs> How did I did, do that? Did you actually? No, I've got a 2020 quote in front of me. Okay, but How did still... I make that mistake? <laughs> Oh that might be the biggest misfire I think I've ever done. On this I really, show. I'm. Totally... I've done like one episode off, but I'm five weeks behind. And what's best is I really hope there's like at least one viewer that like clicks it and hears one fifteen and immediately just like that's not right and turns it off. Yeah, <laughs> they don't wait five seconds. I'm gonna show you it's one hundred and twenty. Um, <laughs> I'm just not on this planet right now. Oh my goodness me! It, you know what? It's been a wild five weeks. I think it's just, yeah, it's it's been a very full-on and, and a bit of a blur, maybe the last couple of episodes, mm. I think, with, with the, the Oscar race and yeah. and all of the different films we've been covering and we've got a, a, you know, a little announcement to the back end of the show and... Mm. Um, a little tease. And yeah, it's just been a, it's been a full-on ride, so uh, I apologise for being five episodes off Jesus what we're actually... <laughs> you just went for it, man. You went for it. I, I was so it. confident in it. I too. know, exactly. Um, <laughs> Jake, goodness. are you ready for your 2020 quote? I sure am, Zeke. <laughs> Not your 2015 quote. No, that uh, was Steve Jobs, wasn't it? It might be, yes. Something like that. I don't um, even remember anymore. No worries. All right. Well, here it is. This is for the HD Zeke. For, for the, yeah, for the high exactly. distinction. Uh, just get you eight, eight and two. Yep. What kind of person forgets their thirtieth birthday? Promising young woman. That is indeed the twenty twenty <laughs> film, Promising Young Woman, who did pretty well at the Oscars. Bunch of nominations. Bunch of nominations. It got one win. Got one I'm win. pretty happy with where it won. So if we can get into that. Well, you know what? Do you want to get into it right now? Let's, yeah. I yeah. mean. Might as well just start off with that. Obviously, the Oscars were in the last week. I would say I have been watching in the last week the 93rd Academy Awards, but I didn't, I didn't actually sit down and watch it. Again, okay, so what happened? We talked about this last week. For those who don't know, last week we had a um, little bit of a snap lockdown. Um, who knows whether we're going to go back into it in like an hour or two. But Honestly, might be happening. So 121 might be back might... to our remote. But it worked really well. So It came out really well. I'm really um, happy with it, so... We probably could have got away with not even saying that we weren't in the same room, but, you know. Yeah, it was a, it was a milestone. It was a interesting... Because you're right, like, so many podcasts have succumbed to remote shows, and we just got really lucky that we've never had to do it because yeah. of circumstances and pre-records and all of that jazz, but... Well, we're um, taking the opportunity to sneak this episode in just in case we do go into a lockdown. Yeah, we shall see. But because of that lockdown... um Rev cancelled their uh, big screening, backlot screening of the Oscars, so I had to do what I did last year and just sit with my little laptop watching other people react to it and sort of just following the news in the morning while messaging people. And I think I messaged you. I think I sent you a video of Thomas Vinterberg walking up for his Oscar. You did. And, yeah, um, yeah no, and you did send me a list of the winners after the facts. So. That's right. I manually um, typed them out for you. <laughs> So I was like, I know a couple of them. I don't know all of them. So. Okay. Well, that's cool. We can kind of run through them then because some yeah. of them you might have forgot. Like maybe the you don't remember who won the editing, for example. So, um, yeah, cool. Well, let's do that. I think I was overall pretty happy. I, I My goal to be, I got 16 out of 23 categories correct. You walked out with a distinction average there. Uh, yeah, I think I got 69% average. Oh, so it's like C, CD. I know, I just missed it, which I'm a little annoyed by, but that, that's okay. That's okay. I did really well on the shorts. 
So, like, if anything happens, I love you. Best animated show. Like, things like that I did really well in. Like, those are really easy categories because, like, I haven't even seen any of these shorts. Yeah. I actually made a good effort last year to watch a lot of them, but... Um, so that was all over the place, and um, best actress was all over the place, and there were some big surprises in a few categories. But um, yeah, so I got sixteen out of twenty-three. Five out of those seven were my second pick, so I'm pretty happy with the sixty-nine average. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think uh, I think it's very nice. Yeah, if I were to say so. <laughs> all right, well, let's start off with best documentary feature on my Octopus Teacher one. Zeke, how do you feel about that? Very happy with that. Very good. I loved it. I think it was. Probably rank it in my top ten films of the year. If I uh, yeah, had to, fair had to, but we'll, you'll have to probably wait because we might talk about that. What in the third year version of, of our stale popcorn oh, episode? Gotcha. Probably one hundred six. No, uh, yeah, one hundred four. No, so you'll have to wait for one fifty six for us to. Talk oh, what did about. I say? Um, one hundred six. You were. Saying. I meant one fifty six. Sorry. Yeah. 156. Now I'm getting episode numbers confused. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I was 50 off that time. Um, yeah. Now I think I think we both collectively that was the only docker we've actually seen. Um, you from can, the from the uh, from yeah. the five nominees. Yeah. You, uh, collective did play at Luna for a bit. Crip Camps on Netflix, I think, and I think Time is on uh, Prime. Been meaning to watch Crip Camp for like mm. almost a year because I'm pretty sure it came out like april last year on netflix and right I just haven't gotten around to get into it but yeah that's the same case for me i was really hoping to watch some of them during our snap doc lockdown last weekend ended up watching like you know don't f with cats and stuff like that but yeah and you know like i said like i we talked about this a couple of weeks ago my octopus teacher i wasn't i mean i liked it a lot i didn't love it nearly as much as you did but i'm also very happy it won because these aren't the kinds of docos that usually win so I no. think it's a nice representative thing. Uh, I don't think I've met a single person who's watched it that didn't uh at didn't least like, like it. it. Yeah. yeah. Of so course. I think it was a really strong documentary and it was something unique um in its own outright. So I think I think that's a really cool documentary. I, I'm not sure where he's going to go from here. Um, yeah, because he's sort of the whole thing from the beginning of that film is him as a filmmaker sort of leaving the circle and doing his own thing. So it's like, does he come back in? Yeah, because this is sort of, this is, I mean, uh, I'm not, I can't quite remember the filmmaker off the top of my head. Um, Yeah, I can't remember. I just remember the funny, when I was watching the reaction, I think it was the Oscar expert. It's like these twins that do these Oscar reactions. I was watching their live reactions to the Oscars. And one of them, hmm? Philippa Elrich and James Reed are the, two people it's directed by so i assume they're the ones who yeah i'm trying to remember who the actual like subject was which uh, one craig foster oh yeah 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 that's right craig foster um, um so i find that really interesting how does that just how does that work in terms of who get who walks out with the award the producers walk out with so does craig well, foster produ- walk out with it or um do the possibly i'm not sure about documentary probably mm. i guess it's very similar to international film which it's actually very similar because that's also a film where we've only seen the one that won and you like it a lot more than I do, but it's still a great film. Great. Another round. So happy with that. Yeah, it's a great I love and- in, in the best director category, Vinterberg put his Oscar like directly in his frame. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> I didn't see that. That's amazing. Yeah, well, they had them all up there. And I'm sure we'll get, we're going to get to Best Director in a sec because that's great. So this is when they were um, announcing the nominees. For the Best Director. His <laughs> window... Yeah, clearly in the foreground, it's just that's Oscar, so funny. and it's like because he, you kind of figured like I'm sure 
Thomas thought he, he's no chance of winning this. Yeah, yeah. But he just wants to remind everyone that I I have a I have an Oscar already. So that's so funny. <laughs> it was um because he could have put it anywhere and he put it directly in in the. All in right, the frame. does Good Morning America show me? Ah, oh, it's a montage. That's really annoying. See, I haven't seen this shot. That's um, amazing. I'm obviously not gonna. Oh wait, well, here we go. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> it's how clear is that? Amazing. It's so a little arrogant, but That's I kind of like it because yeah, it's, it's like ca- right in the frame. It's very clearly like <laughs> I've already won one. I'm happy. Like because oh, so at that point, because Emerald Fennell got nominated too. She won for screenwriting, but yes. she's. She's in this window, right? Like, she, yeah, she get you, can't see her, you can't see Oscar here. And exactly, that's what I kind of find funny, that it's like... That's so funny. Pretty much every one of those windows had picked up an Oscar earlier in the night from one way or another. Uh, no, at least... Lee Isaac Chan and David... Well, no, because David Fincher, that, it was, they were technical awards. Okay, so, but, but everyone for now... But Chloe Zhao had, would have one. Yeah. And oh, no, Victor no, the only one who's put his Oscar, like, smack dab that's funny. in front of... I just thought it was funny. Well, that, that's a good point to my confusion, is that they did this directing category, like, right at the beginning. It was, like, the fourth award they gave out. This was a big controversy, and I kind of understand why, is a lot of the categories were done, like, completely out of order. They did director and screenwriting, like, right at the beginning. They did Best Picture third to last, which was really dumb. And, um, yeah, I don't want to get too sidetracked. We're talking yeah, about well, we, we can talk about some of that logistics because yeah, there yeah, have yeah. been a lot of controversies that have come out of this week. Yep. But, yeah, no, I'm obviously... I loved Another Round. and, That's some, and I love that so much. <laughs> I just... Every time that song comes up, I get reminded how much I really liked that film. Yeah. Um, I talked about it being... I think I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed The Hunt on that episode as much yep. as that was... Uh, we had a good a back and forth about it. but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just like the theology in another round a lot, but I, I like, I love both films. Um, but it, you know, sometimes it's nice to like the film that, you know, is not as widely, uh, liked cause it's kind of fun trying to defend well, pe- it. It's, people it's love, the last people Jedi, love... it's the last Jedi syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. I mean, uh, people love another round. They do. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah well deserved, um, but I just thought that director category was so, so I never, funny. I didn't see that that's yeah he just it's right there in the frame that's hilarious like uh, yeah. <laughs> that's congrats on another great. round raking it up um, yeah and his speech I don't think the song was written for the film but if it was it should have won it best song. should have gotten nominated for <laughs> best original song. I don't think it, it I, surely yeah, I wasn't so. but that no, song by Scarlet Pleasure What a Life is there just were different so versions good. there were different versions on Spotify like some of the longer and shorter so they probably did a cut for the film but oh. it's not an original song for the film I don't think I mean, you can't really do best, yeah, best um, soundtrack song, like the song that's not made for the film. Yeah, and even best score, I don't think that would be eligible because it's not part of the score. It wasn't made for the film, so. It's one of the best moments in cinema of the last year. Damn. No, fair enough. Best moment. I mean, it's a great scene. Watching Mads Mikkelsen do that dance through the one shot. It's great. No, it is good. Fantastic. Um, 
He should have got. He's he was a snub. He should he should have got nominated. I'm absolutely certain that um, Letterbox's like dance montage of 2020. I'm sure it's a huge highlight in that the, another round dance sequence. Put that song next to um, Zemo dancing, oh, and God. then you're you're set. <laughs> I was confused when I finally watched that because he dances for like literally one second. Yeah, but they've added, so they've added oh, now the cut God. where it's like a minute and a half of him dancing. Oh God. And yeah. it's so anyway, funny. I'll watch it later. But um, yes, yeah, so Thomas Vinterberg gave a wonderful speech about his daughter, who we talked about on our mm-hmm. Another Round podcast, what happened there, and very tragic, very emotional. But he long-deserving. He's He's been around for a long time, Mr. Vinterberg. Um, all right, best anime feature. No surprise here. It went to Seoul. Um, yeah, not cool. surprised. <laughs> Next. <laughs> uh, poor Wolf Walkers. Uh, best visual effects. I'm actually really happy about this. Tenet won. Which, uh, you know, when you look at this lineup, the one and only Ivan, Love and Monsters, the Midnight Sky, not not to comment on the effects of it, I'm pretty sure Love and Monsters VFX were done in Australia, which is cool, but it's like... I mean, it's easily one of the strongest points of Tenant. Like, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you go to our conversation on that episode, uh, we both pointed out the two strongest points, probably the um, music, like the composed soundtrack mm. and the visual effects are the two things that we easily yeah. would give the pluses to and probably gets it over the line as a film. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing with score is it didn't even get nominated, which I thought was ridiculous. So yeah. where else was Tenet going to win other than here? Deservingly. Yeah. So I'm happy with that. Um, I'm also happy... With, I mean, going into best score, Soul won best score, which, you know, people talked about have, it having competition with Mank. I didn't really see that. I didn't really care for Mank's score. Really? Yeah, I don't remember too much of Mank's score, so... It's like, oh, it's old-timey, cool. Definitely would have given, yeah, props to Soul for that one, if Tenet wasn't there. Because I would have said, honestly, Tenet, from a technical standpoint, was a big accomplishment, if you really look into how they composed that score, and the consideration Mm. and the intellect that went behind it, I think that that was easily deserving of of recognition. It's a shame it didn't, because Mm. Soul, I mean, it's it's a... film about a jazz musician if the music wasn't up to par i mean yeah it would significantly impact the film because you know in in pixar's catalog of amazing films soul if you go to our episode it kind of sits middle of the road it's not Mm. one of the worst films but it's far from one of their best so um yeah neither of us really get the hype behind yeah seldom seldom positive i think was our review kind of like in that middle to pushing positive but it wasn't anything um you know if you actually compare the two it films wasn't between that and onward like i really kind of was probably feeling the same about both of those films mm. in the last year i didn't dislike onward at all i thought it was had probably a honestly a kind of more i enjoyed the story i think a bit more in onward than i did in soul mm. i mean i think the themes and messagings were much heavier in in soul but I think films. I even think like films like Inside Out did that better, and I'm not yeah. even a big fan of Inside Out. Yeah, so. exactly. No, I feel that I feel very much the same. Maybe mm. not about Onward. I thought Onward was okay. Mm. I don't know if it's necessarily a more engaging story for me, but I think they're both very I think similar. It's the performances from Pratt and Holland that yeah. get it over the line. The Chris's. Yeah. Oh no, that's Tom. Chris and Tom. All over the place this episode. Yeah, I know. Crazy. So, best song went to, shockingly, Fight For You from Judas and the Black Messiah, mm-hmm. which is very shocking because the front one was clearly One Night in Miami with the only competition perhaps being Low C from Scene since that won the Golden Globe, I think, for the mm-hmm. ori- for original song. 
So that was a big surprise. Judas with a second win. Very nice. Uh, best sound went to Sound of Metal. Now, I think this is actually really important because it seems obvious on the surface, but you look at films that got sound awards in the last few years, it's either 1917 or Ford v. Ferrari, Bohemian Rhapsody. They picked the loudest, most obvious films for sound. Like, they easily could have gone to Greyhound in this case, but Sound of Metal is a better example of, of like, clever sound editing. And um, I'm really glad. When to, when to have absence of sound. Yeah, exactly. Just check out our episode. We talked about it for, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> we talked, yeah, we talked about a lot of these films, which is awesome. Uh, most of these winners, even. Is there... Other than My Octopus Teacher, so far, every winner we've talked about, we've done a show on. Yeah. Which is cool. Um, so, yeah, I'm very happy with that sentimental win. It also won Best Editing, um, which, okay. yeah, is awesome. I mean, I still think Trial of Chicago 7, totally... I, I like that film a lot. I think it totally could have won for editing as well, but... Again, Sound of Metal, I think it's just representative of something that's a bit more clever and subtle. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad the Academy's going for that as of late. Um, let's see. So I like the pacing in Trial of Chicago 7. Like, for its editing pace, it's it's really good. It complements the script really well. Yeah, yeah. But it moves at a good speed. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always found that it's it's an interesting one to always comment on what, what constitutes really good edit. Like, you can clearly identify when things are being badly edited, but... Like, to give an award out for editing, because editing can be so distinct and mm. so different that it's very hard for me to, like, really... Like, I'm running through my head, I'm like, the sound of metal... But it makes sense. It's, like, mixing... Like, when you... Editing has to complement your sound mixing, so it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah. I'm just checking. Yes, it is Thomas Flight. He He's done this uh, many times. He does a video called Editing Lessons from the Best Editing Nominees. And I think he did it last year and this year where he talks about the editing of the five nominated films. So in this case, No Man Land, Trial, Promising Young Woman, The Father, um, Sound of Metal, which won. And uh, they're really good videos talking about how each film just is different. And it's hard to compare them in terms of edits because they're they're achieving different things Mm -hmm. with the edits. Um, But check out his video. He did one last year as well with Parasite and 1917 and all that. Wait, no, 1917? No. No, that was the same year. No, no, no. I mean, did it get an editing nom? I don't think it did. But, you know, you, you get the picture. Yeah. Um, great videos. Uh, moving on to the production design areas. Best costume design and best makeup hairstyling went to Mark Rennie's Black Bottom. And best production design overall went to Mank, which this was pretty predicted. Those were both my... All three of them were my number one picks, so I'm um, not too surprised there. And that's fair. And I'm yeah. glad Mark Rennie's getting some love. Yeah. Yeah. Because sure as shit wasn't getting love in the, uh, the, the best picture nominations. No. <laughs> Well, best right. actor. <laughs> so this was shocking. Best cinematography. No Man Land did not win. It went to Mank, which, on the surface, not that shocking because Mank is very stylistic and sort of an ode to the, the Hollywood of awe or old. And but I think just the way the race was going, it seemed very clearly No Man Land was just going to sweep and get cinematography. But um, are you are you happy or upset that Mank won or? I mean... <laughs> I think it comes back to, I think Nomadland's strengths came from its other areas that it actually did went on to win. Mm. I think cinematography is another one where it's like, it's the Venn diagram of creative input that influences the story and technical prowess. And yeah. Fincher continuously throughout history has proven his technical prowess in cinematography. Right. And 
the film does a very good job of capturing that 1940s aesthetic. Mm. And I think people need to consider the fact that clearly what they've opted for here is the technical prowess over the artistic input, I think. Right. Um, I think Nomadland has some great cinematography in it, but I'm not unhappy because okay. I can see the rationale to why Mank was picked for this category yeah. because it wasn't going to get picked in its screenplay or its story or its performances, really, a lot of, mm. or even direction. Um, so it's picked up a lot of the technical awards um, simply because that's the area where it kind of has its greatest strengths. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of, you know, well, I, I was saying Mank was going to be the Irishman of the year. It actually ended up being the Joker of the year in that it won the two awards that you were like, okay, that's fair enough, score and actor, in this case, cinematography, production design. Yeah. And it didn't go further than that. So it's like, I'm yeah, I'm not unhappy as well because I think that's where Mank did excel. And, and the argument is, well, Nomadland, it's a lot of natural lighting. You know, there's mm. not a lot of actual... It's very grounded. I yeah. think... Uh, the things Nomadland, which we're going to get into very shortly, it, yep. it won for, made a hundred percent sense. I mean, and yeah, it was a lot of natural lighting. It was, it was very raw. It was, and that's what complemented the film, which is where it comes back to. That's artistic cinematography. Had it been more technically prowess, we might actually have become bis- a bit disjointed from the story, right? A bit disjointed from the themes, a bit disjointed from the direction. Um, so. It was an artistic election that has clearly just been pushed to the side because someone who put a bit more technical consideration in there, which you can't argue with either. Yeah, exactly. Because that's how that. that's how um, broad that topic is, and a lot of these um, awards are quite broad in their category considerations. Mm. So, well, yeah, and and it, it's too you're saying like no mainland cinematography serves the story and serves the presentation to us, the audience, how we perceive the story. But then Mank does the same thing. It's just, there's obviously a lot more, um, what's the word? HMDs? HMM, the big, the big light, <laughs> the sunlight, the thing that scratched up my car when I put it in the back of the car. I can't remember. HUM. Oh, the halogens. I, I don't know. I'm the ones thinking, that are really hot. They're like giant lights. I'm forgetting the, the acronym yeah. or the, that's okay. Well, oh. if it's 40s, it's like halogen bulbs and stuff. Like oh, right. Really I'm hot just, ones, I'm, like the tungstens. Yeah, I guess so. What what I mean is like the, there were there were more things to light, or there were more lights yeah. to to turn on. on yeah, bank. of course. <laughs> um, moving into the screenplay categories, these were the first, I think, the first two awards of the night, which was shocking to jump right into it. And both of them were kind of upsets. Instead of No Man Land getting best adapted screenplay, it went to The Father, and instead of Trial getting original screenplay, this was less so an upset. Went to Promising Young Woman. Well so, deserved. Yeah, we're really happy for that. I think that was the one that, between that and Kerry Mulligan, they were the two that we were really hoping would probably right. get the push, I think, when we talked about it on the episode. Um, obviously, when we did Promising Young Woman, we hadn't seen The Father yet, so that's another. Um, but I'm happy with, uh, you know, Emerald Fennell picking up the screenplay nod, I think, because I actually do think it was the best original story of the year. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. And I look at these other ones, like I think Minaria Sound and Metal had a great chance as well, but it was all leaning towards, is everyone going to go with the safe pick trial? And they didn't think we were promising Young Woman. Um, but like I said, I don't think that's... It's cool. It's awesome. I don't think it was as big of an upset as the father beating No Man Land. Yeah, that one does surprise me. 
Yeah, and I'm honestly really happy because we said it earlier. We get swept up in what's going to win and what are the odds that we forget our own actual feelings. And when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, The Father has a better script than No Man Land because No Man Land, you're right, it's not about the script. Yeah. It serves the story, but it's you know it's not the direction mm-hmm. you know and it's like i'm completely happy with the father plus it's other competition the white tiger bore its subsequent movie film it's like i don't think those films stood a chance yeah of course so moving on from that we're now getting into the acting category so the least surprising award probably of the entire night was daniel coulier's win for best supporting actor absolutely deserving incredible in judas no. Nothing, nothing else <laughs> to add to that. <laughs> nothing to add. Agreed. Absolutely deserves it. His speech was pretty wild. I gotta rewatch it, but yeah. I remember being wild. And he made some joke about thanking his parents for making him, and then like the people that went with him were like all confused. It was really funny. Um, best supporting actress went to Ya Jun Yun. So congratulations to her. Beating out Glenn Close, Olivia Coleman. No, no easy feat there. Yeah, but honestly, putting them all next to each other in their performances, hers mm. was definitely warranted. Yeah. She, had to, she had to have a stroke for half the film. I mean... That's right. Yeah, yeah. You figure how, like... Because she's so fun and quirky, but then the second half of the film, you're like, oh, this yeah. is quite restrained and kind of sad. And yeah. it's like, you know, like the the boy... I forget his name. Alan Kim. There we go. Um, thanks, Jake. Um, <laughs> he's great, but I think he's complimented by, obviously, the performances from, like, Stephen Yoon and... and, and, um, and I think yeah, John Yoon. And... Yeah. and She's amazing in it. She's, and I think that, uh, and we talk about it on the Minari episode. Um, but yeah, she's great. Uh, she was my favorite part of the film. Yeah, I'm glad she won because, like, like I was saying with Maria Bakalova earlier, I'm kind of just glad she's in the mix. That's cool. Mm. But they were never gonna, they were never gonna get a win. Yeah, she's, she's in a Borat film. She's not gonna win an Oscar. <laughs> Um, and again, going close to Olivia Coleman, they're gonna have another feud in another in another year. Yeah. It looks like. Uh, so moving on to Best Actress, and again, this is where things get muddled because all of these categories, usually right at the end of the show, were all over the place. So strange. So Best Actress, this was the most unpredictable of the night, and it went to Frances McDormand. I believe you were making the argument that she should win, or Carrie Mulligan. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I would have, yeah. like, I feel like Carrie Mulligan would have been the uns- like the surprise. But right. it comes back to, it's like you just said, it's like, it's nice that she's at least put in that category. Because it's very hard to compete with Frances McDormand. I mean, yeah. it was... She's now won three acting Oscars, which is insane. Whew. Two in the last, what, three years? Yeah, yeah. So... And then, of course, a producing Oscar as well, or an Oscar for producing. Crazy. So, well-deserved. I mean, it's yeah. her performance is great in it. Um, and it's so grounded and, mm. and, and kind of... The way, obviously, that that film works, it's like she's almost kind of conducting a documentary while also acting so mm-hmm. he walks that weird bound like that interview line where she's like sitting there interviewing real people it's such a fascinating film it's like and i'm very proud to have it up in my room <laughs> yeah you got the poster <laughs> very nice so. it's it's look it's like you know i watch a lot of stuff with better call soul and every time ray seahorn talks about you know half the performance or at least a huge part of the performance is when you're not speaking and mm as a character, why are you not speaking? And then how are you going to listen to the other character? And Frances McDormand does a lot of listening in the film. And I think that was the subtlety we talked about weeks and weeks and weeks ago to her performance, where I didn't think it was going to win an Oscar because it's just too subtle. It's, also, but it's diversification they got it. of all of... If you look at her three acting Oscars, 
the dive I can only cite two off the top of my head. I can't get the third. What's mm-hmm. the, what's her third acting Oscar for? Well, well she got um for Fargo and Free Billboards. Far- Fargo, of course. I was thinking it was going to be Fargo. Oh my goodness. Um, I don't know why I didn't <laughs> just go with my gut. Right. Um, look at the diversification of all three of those roles. Mm. And I mean, Fargo was twenty years ago, twenty five, twenty five years ago. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think ninety six. Um, yeah. So it's like all three of the roles are so distinct and mm. different, um, and I think that's really impressive too, and that speaks volumes to her capabilities. Yeah. Carrie Mulligan, great, obviously fantastic performance, but it's one of those things that if she wants to be in that upper echelon. It's consistency, isn't it? It's pulling yeah. it's pulling another role after another role. And it's the same thing you could say with her and you can say with people like Saoirse Ronan. It's the ability to constantly be able to deliver, you know, Academy Award winning performances. Because mm. people like Olivia Coleman have already done that. And and people like you know, Francis McDonald, they've already done that. So yeah. it's like, it. I think that, you know, it's like getting the nom, that's a good starting point. Um, but... You know, it's going to be the ability in the next two or three years if she can get onto projects and get into films that consistently do yeah. that. And that, that, it's kind of a thing you sort of just brought up where um, in terms of awarding it to the newcomer or the unlikely companion versus like the veteran, where people have pointed this out where a lot of the uh, minority wins and a lot of the sort of surprise wins are going to the supporting. We have Daniel Coulier, Yon Jun Yun. Uh, and it was kind of a well, not similar last year. It was all veterans last year from memory, but um, in, even including Walking Phoenix. But yeah, and then the controversy to, uh, the controversy go. goes to you know well out of the best actress, let's give it to the veteran you know, who already has two Oscars. Oh, in the best actor category, let's give it to the veteran as opposed to the person people so thought let's, were going to win. Let's, let's get into in, this. Let's yeah. jump into this one, okay? Because this. I have a couple of points I want to talk about okay. with, with this one. So, obviously, best actor went to Sir Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you now, I think we're on the same page more than you probably think we're going to be. I think we are too. Okay, cool. I think we are too. <laughs> this is not going to be um, a fight. Don't worry. I think there's a big problem that the father has suffered where a lot of these surprise uh, wins for the father have come from the fact that it was really, it lacked accessibility. Well, it just uh, came out really late really late really late yeah. and it's not fair um because that's that and that has been to its detriment because he's won an oscar based off mostly just critical reviews and praise and ma rainey's black bottom has been accessible to everyone because of netflix mm. and this comes back to this is going to be a consistent problem that they need to address in the future you need to this and people and it goes both ways Producers need to consider the fact that this might be a problem. They might have to deal with backlash because the film is lacks accessibility. And something like The Father needs to be coming out in December and January. It doesn't need to be... It shouldn't be coming out mid-late March. Like, it just shouldn't. And then... And... Um, I think that's a problem. Because it's like, if you look back at December and January... Yeah, we had a bit of Nomadland and stuff. But we had films like Ammonite coming out and stuff. These films that... We're getting a lot of Oscar buzz until they came out, and well, we kind of. To be fair, with Ammonite, we saw that at like the one-time screening at a film festival, and that didn't actually come out until like February, March. Okay, fair. You know, but it was viewable. And in all fairness, a lot of the people who are voting are on Academy portals that do get access to these films. Tenet infamously was put on very, very, very late, even though the film came out in quote unquote July of last year, 
or August, whatever it was. Um, but I think the the importance of having the film come out in a wide release is instead of just having the nine, ten thousand Academy voters all talking collectively about these films, they're inspired by what the wider world is talking about. So when everyone started watching Promising Young Woman, there's probably a bunch of people in the Academy portal being like, oh, a lot of people are talking about this. I guess I'll watch it. And yeah. I think that's where that comes in. And I think it's it's it comes back to its performances. And it's like, obviously, I loved Bozeman's performance in Marini's Black Bottom. Check out her episode. We talk about it. Yeah. It's, we talk about that. But we also talk about Viola Davis, who takes up half of the film, too. She's equally as important in that film as he is. Um, and has, equ- honestly, next to nearly as much screen time and I think that that's the distinction. Whereas this film, the father was billed Olivia Coleman, Anthony Hopkins. Olivia Coleman's not in it as much as as Viola Davis was in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. No, but I will say I still think Viola Davis was in category fraud. I still would to this day think she should have been in supporting because it was about Levy. Like she's an important person in the story, but. I don't think she has as much screen time. If you actually check the screen time, there's no way she has more screen time or even to Chadwick Boseman's. The film starts with her. Yeah, and then there's like a 20, 30 minute gap where Levy's in the room with the other actors while she's hiding somewhere and they're trying to find her. Like, you know what? She's not in the movie as much as we remember her being. But the father, the father, it's Anthony Hopkins start to finish. Yes. I said that really aggressively. That's, that's, a, that's a that's a ninety minutes versing forty five minutes or fifty minutes. Like, uh, I, and honestly, it, it's straight up. And we talk about it on both the episodes. It's like they're probably both the actors' best performances of their career, or mm. at least for Hopkins, it's second to best. Um, but some would probably argue this was better than his performance as Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, some have they're, made that argument. Yeah, and I to an extent would probably agree with that because and this is why I would because Jodie Foster takes up half the screen time in Silence of the Lambs and her performance is that's category frog as well him winning best actor in Silence of the Lambs I'd say he did it (laughs) because I would say they both take up half the screen time and her her story is just as important as his story is in that and yet but the father is like the title says it's about the father. It's mm. about him and his slow descent. And I think that that's the, I just, it's well-deserved and it sucks. It sucks what happens, you know, like uh, it's a real shame. We'll never get to see Bozeman perform again. I know that. I agree with that. And it is the best performance of his career. And it was honestly, it was robbed for not being put in the best picture category. He yeah, wanted a I nomination. Ridiculous. It should have got in over Mank or... Or even just a knife spot. Like, come on, guys. Like, it was seriously an amazing film with an amazing performance. And, but it comes back to it's, it is an award ceremony. And you, and I think, I was thinking about this during the week. I think one of the problems was its lack of exposure. Um, The father in particular. Because a lot of people, you know, a lot of critical people said, oh, it's Anthony Hopkins' best performance. But the general public didn't get access to that film as much as Ma Rainey's Black Bottom just because one was on Netflix and one wasn't. And I think this is an important... You know, to be fair, even with that, I think a lot of people complaining about this haven't seen either of these bloody films. So a lot of people have been like, oh, Chapman Boseman was robbed. It's like, have you even seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? 
and I think they're both impeccable performances. When I stand back and I'm and I think about, it, I'm like, you know what? I mean, Anthony Hopkins' performance it got to me personally more than Chadwick's did. But to your point of like people not seeing the father in time, but having the chance to see Ma Rainey, it's like, well, I feel like looking people complaining. A lot of them haven't seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. They're just complaining for the sake of complaining. The real complaint is the Academy putting Best Actor last for the first time, I think, ever. The first time in 80 years that Best Picture wasn't the last award to be given out. And what do they do? They squander it. They give it to someone who's not even there. I think this is the problem with the producers of the show for being hyping up this train of, oh, look, it, we're going to end the show on, on Chadwick Boseman's widow giving this wonderful speech and he's going to win. It's going to be this great, honorable thing. And it's like the producers clearly didn't know that he wasn't going to win. And if they just kept it to best actor, best actress, best picture, the controversy wouldn't be anywhere understand. near I, as yeah, much. Yeah, I really don't understand why they changed the formatting of that. That makes no sense to me. They wanted it to be good television. Oh, look, we're going to end on this beautiful note and honor this man, this. and they, they completely dropped the ball. Yeah, completely. Well, food for thought in the future, right? It, oh, it was stupid. It was absolutely stupid. And and I really do respect Anthony Hopkins in this situation, and he put out his video as a speech and you know, praised Chadwick and talked about how you know he's 93 years old. He did not expect to win this. He's now the oldest living... Um, I think Oscar winner ever, if not best actor Oscar winner at 83. So it's really impressive. But I mean, that's where a lot of the controversy does come from. It's mm-hmm. just the Academy's depiction, uh, the, the way they did it, the way they brought Chadwick's family over, even though he wasn't going to win anything. The, apparently they have like these little pin-up Chadwick Boseman faces and all the, the gift bags and stuff. Like it was really weird. It's very weird. How... They were trying to honor him, quote unquote. Man, I don't know. This is why I think these awards are so tacky sometimes. It gets really weird. Like I love seeing the results and who wins what, but it is some of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, like the two hundred thousand dollar gift bags. How the hell do you justify that? That's awful, disgusting. Don't know what to tell you, buddy. Yeah. So, so let's let's wrap it up with best director and best picture went to Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Um, awesome, awesome, awesome. Happy. Very happy One thing that. I didn't like, um, and this has got nothing to do with Chloe's out. I don't like the media's coverage of the Oscars. They constantly were peddling um, that she was like. I, I one thing I don't like is I don't like when we constantly have to like differ. Like it was like with the parasite stuff too. It's like they were Nomadland probably was the best film of the last year. Like. Uh, hmm. Although, like, and we loved it, and her direction was the best direction of the year, and I loved her speech. Um, but uh, it's just a shame that they always have to differentiate. They always have to be like pat themselves on the back for how progressive they're being by giving. Uh, they constantly say, "Oh, first person of first woman of color to win," hmm. and I just sit there and I was like, "She was the best director." Just acknowledge she's the best director. Like it's good. why does it always have to be different? Because it gets clicks, and the media love it because they've spent so many years accusing the Oscars that they just have to say something and about it when they do Oscar it right. Self-aggrandizing for patting themselves on the back. It's the same thing happened last year with Parasite. It was the best film that came out last year. It was the best direction. He earned that. He worked for that, and it had nothing to do with him being a person of color. Like, no, which is was. great, which is sort of what validates these decisions. In my opinion. Like, you, the media are going to talk about what they talk about. Mm-hmm. And it is frustrating, but it's like, these are celebratory moments. And even I got swept in in January when I put it out. I said, our oh, best prediction, 
two women uh, directors are going to be nominated and Chloe Zhao is going to win. And that happened. I made that prediction in January. Yeah, but they and I taunt it, it proudly. It. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. The politics, like, why couldn't I just make the prediction, oh, Chloe Zhao is going to win? Why did it have to be two women will be nominated and then Chloe Zhao? Like, you get swept into this stuff. I do. And I don't... Yeah, there's a lot of self-congratulating patting on the back from the Academy, but is it really them touting the, the milestone or is it the media that Both. started the hashtag Oscar so white crap? Yeah. You know, it's like... She deserved it. Yeah. She's a great director. Fantastic film. Yeah. But her ability to direct has nothing to do with those things. It's just no. her ability to be a good director. Yeah. And, and she deserved it. So, and I liked her speech. Her speech was very classy. I I don't know if I've actually seen it. I gotta give it a watch. See, I was so in and out because class. We had the Channel Seven feed, which was like two hours behind, while I was watching the live feed. So I was in and out of speeches and stuff. Um, so I gotta watch it properly. But yeah, yes. Yeah, so overall, like I said, there's a lot of bad decisions they made in terms of how the show was run, but. I'm happy with a lot of the results and Absolutely. how it all went down. So, yeah. Well, very cool. That's our Oscar talk. Yeah, that's it. We're all done. We're for done. A year. I know. Don't have to do it for another year. Very exciting. Oh, you did you d- catch any? You drink that water bottle. I will. Um, <laughs> man, his tummy, tummy was rumbling there. Oh. Um, yeah. So, moving on mm. out of that, uh, have you caught anything in the last week? The only film I've seen, well, I've seen. Two films in the last week. One, of course, the film of the week. And uh, both of which directed by a director's corner, so we'll Peter Weir. we'll tie that into the second half of the yeah, show. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so what have you watched? Okay, so I've caught a couple of things. I'm just going to run through them because I know we've spent a little bit of time. I haven't got much to say about really any of them. <laughs> the one I'm most curious about, I know you saw Stowaway on Netflix. So I saw Social Animals, which is a documentary, a social media oh, okay. documentary. Did nothing new out of social very much in the same vein as social dilemma uh, you name it it's this one followed three different instagram users and sort of the power of instagram it's a couple of years old now so that was back when instagram was kind of at its peak popularity uh i saw a film six years um that was directed by the dupla uh, sorry produced by the dupla uh, duplass brothers okay so i got excited unfortunately did not hit the heights of their writing that's um, good directed by hannah fidel and it just follows a six-year relationship of a couple that started in high school and they're now at the kind of the fork in the road. It was a toxic relationship from mm. the start and honestly, it just kind of made me feel kind of off. It wasn't great performances, great anything, very seldom average film. And the only other film I did catch was the sci-fi film Stowaway, which actually had a pretty strong cast and a Kendrick. Yeah, we uh, talked Tony about it Collette. last week coming to Netflix was um honestly probably the closest thing i can give it to is probably sunshine but i enjoyed sunshine significantly more the danny boyle 2006 film it was okay it was this very middle of the road sci-fi film had very i've seen a lot of the tropes of missions gone wrong with other films before and i Mm. think other films did it better and i think it had a couple of budget constraints too and a very lackluster ending so Disappointing. Good performances, though. Okay. So, that's, that's what I've got. How was my girl, Tony Collette? Was she all right? It was great. <laughs> she got to do an Australian accent, like her voice. Oh, nice. Which was fantastic. Loved yeah, it. That's fair. Um, See, I just yeah. go to Muriel's wedding. I'm pretty sure she had the accent there, too, actually. But That's pretty well, much was a while ago, yeah. all I caught in the last week. I'd give you give it a watch. It's a nice, easy 90 minutes. Okay. Um, but 
it's not anything special. Fair enough. No worries. You got anything to add in career sections? Um, not necessarily. I just I wanted to point out that you've had actually a pretty kind of cool, maybe full circle moment career in terms of uh, a perhaps a screenwriting yeah, lesson you may have taught. <laughs> yeah, I started teaching and I um, did a uh, screenwriting lesson in the last week, which was nice. kind of funny to, yeah, like you said, come full circle, go from learning this stuff. And we always talked about on this podcast kind of our journeys and my journey has definitely taken me to teaching. So conducted that class, uh, long way to go, but really enjoyed it. Oh, that's um, good. Which Which film of ours did you... The Pretender. Nice. Did you use reference? Yeah. And that was probably the most nerve-wracking part, watching the kids watch my film. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair enough. I, I totally get that. Cool. Yeah, no worries. Well, Beautiful. it is time for us to move into our film of the week and our latest director's corner. But Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? This week in the show, we're talking about Peter Weir, just like we did last week with Gallipoli. But this week, we're talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock. Madame. Something terrible has happened. Three of your young ladies and uh, and Miss McCraw are missing on the rock. What happened? Well, now, Mrs. Appleyard, uh, that's just the trouble. Nobody knows what happened. Miranda! What is the secret of Hanging Rock? And who will it claim next? Miranda attends a girls' boarding school in Australia. One Valentine's Day, the school typically strict headmistress treats the girls to a picnic field trip to an unusual but scenic volcanic formation called Hanging Rock. Mm, I'm curious, was that logline for the the which uh, the 2018 film? Is no, it 2018? No. Oh, look at that! Very nice. 75. Um, very good. Very I only good. did half of it though because it gets a bit too much it's into detail very descriptive mm. um yeah so this is our peter weir discussion we of course talked about gallipoli last week we're going to talk about more of him this week so i managed to i didn't have much time this past week so i managed to catch obviously picnic at hanging rock last night in addition to for the first time ever dead poet society which i never seen before fantastic yeah it's it's a pretty excellent excellent film i actually if you don't mind i have a funny story about sort of my preconceived notions going into it. Mm-hmm. So I was very aware, having not seen this film, I was still very aware of the Family Guy spoof where Brian becomes a teacher and he's he's very good and very engaged with the students, but he's sent to like this lower class of like other misfits of like minorities and like pregnant teenage girls and stuff. And the story becomes about him having to get them engaged in education. They do the Oh Captain, My Captain speech at the end. So when I started watching this film, I was like, oh, this is a movie about Robin Williams being sent to like a different class and having to teach them. And I was like, oh, no, that's not it at all. Because <laughs> I thought it starts out with like, you know, these straight-laced white boys, you know, very obedient uh, boarding school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is like a juxtaposition 
to like the anti-authoritarians that uh, that Robin Williams is going to meet later. And then like an hour into the movie, I'm like, I'm starting to think that th- this isn't going to happen. <laughs> but so you um, based your whole instinct on the film of a Family Guy spoof episode. Yeah, well, no, that's not fair. Is it not fair? When I watched <laughs> The Shining, it matched pretty well with the Simpsons spoof. <laughs> <laughs> no, but look, it, it obviously the theme still came through of like, you know, it actually being revolved around the kids, this coming of age story and the power of, you know, one good teacher and the impact they can leave on students Absolutely. with creative or uh, creative expressionism. And, and, and the boys has been very sweet in general. Like I loves that. I just sort of love their personality. It's actually a excellent double feature to picnic and hanging rock because they're both about you sort of all boys or girls, all boys or girls in boarding schools and, Obviously, there's like an 80, 90 year gap. Um, and obviously, one's Australian, one's, I think, New England. Yes, yeah, so it's yeah. in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I've caught um, five of Peter Weir's Wow, films. okay. Cool. So, including the film of the week. Um, so, I've caught Gallipoli, Depart Society, Truman Show, Picnic at Hanging Rock, and Master and Commander. Oh, that's the only one I haven't seen, Master and Commander. And I love Master and Commander. Right. Um, Master and Commander came out before the. F- first part of the Caribbean film. So I feel like it was the most authentic sort of that sort of time. Mm. Um, at least, and it's kind of funny. It came out in 2001 or 2002 and I watched it probably a year or two ago and, and didn't even register it as a Peter Weir film. Right. And I just really enjoyed it. Um, it's got a very good, very strong Russell Crowe performance. I feel like that kind of time frame was definitely the height of his, acting career or at least popularity is probably more accurate because mm. um, obviously it came off gladiator um and it's got paul bettany in it too oh nice great um so i really enjoy that film for me because obviously this is a director's corner and obviously yep. before we get into the film of the week it's probably very important to consider um even between the film of the week and mastering command that's 25 years um, of his career because Picnic Hang Rock 75 and Master Commander's 2002. So that's 27 years of his career. Mm. Um, and even uh, Truman Show's 99 or 2000. So I think it's 99, if I had to so, guess. Or 98, maybe. Obviously, Weir's had a, a very extensive career with not really a distinct decade of um, popularity height. Like some mm. of our directors have had in the past, where their strongest performances came in a decade. Um, in fact, he has been pretty consistently good, I think, for that time. But never been the go-to. When you think of the seventies, you think of ex-director. I don't think many people would cite Peter Weir as a as up in that. Uh, I think I think because especially with seventies, you kind of you go to American directors. You know, you look at the Scorseses and the. The, the George Lucases and yeah, stuff like that. You go to Spielberg and But and I think I think Peter Weir has done such an excellent job at um not shredding his I- Australian identity because so many of his films like Picnic and Henning Rock, like Gallipoli, are so distinctly Australian, but bringing just he I think he's a genius director. I just think everything he does is at least excellent. But um I just love how he sort of broke out of that mould and then went on to do like Witness and Truman Show and Dead Poets, which aren't necessarily Australian at all, but his distinctive directorial fingerprint is on it. Okay, so that's that's an interesting thing that you bring up um, because I've really quite... 
because I love all the stories mm. um, that he tells, but they're all, it kind of fits in even in the Danny Boyle mold of he isn't married to a particular type of genre. Right. Um, and he's quite willing to just kind of throw himself at any any time period and 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 the through line between all of his work is very tricky to find i i think the only distinct thing might be the search for identity he kind of has a distinct mm. I- identity a lot of underdog stories which kind or, of is or young stories with authoritarian voices so like gallipoli you have the sergeants and then the boys or dead pole society you have like the principal and the teachers and, okay uh, Truman Show even literally Truman Show, has yeah. the most authoritarian. That's has like the God, one. God yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so that was Master sort of... Commander. I mean, it's even in the title, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the through line I've noticed as I was watching these films back to back. Everything identity is a really important uh, through that. Probably the closest through line I can give get from his work. Um, it's funny you bring up the underdog persona. I think that's correct because and i feel like that's actually kind of even an ode to his direction really like him as a director is like Mm. i said he's not someone you go to straight away and yet he consistently puts in films that are really strong um uh obviously if you look at his uh sort of his catalog um there are films in there that uh people haven't like i definitely haven't heard of but in terms of for the most part like a lot of the stuff I haven't heard of are, are his stuff from the seventies, really, like his early seventies work. But well, a lot of the stuff he did before Picnic and Hanging Rock were like kind of shorts or these fifty-minute films. These kind of strange-looking things. I'm looking at on Letterbox right now. There's only one feature he did before Picnic and Hanging Rock, and I think that's Cars at Eight Paris. That's eighty-seven minutes, and uh, it's got a decent score. I mean, it seems a little... I mean, the posters, like, this car with just spikes picking. It looks very Grindhouse sort of aesthetic. Yeah, Homestyle's 50 minutes, but that's uh, 71. But that's barely a feature at that point. Oh, uh, sorry, which from Homes- Homestyle? Homestyle. Oh, interesting. But No, that's 50 it, it, minutes. It, it, yeah, 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 well, yeah, so it's barely a feature. Yeah, um, fair enough. I think it's important to, like we're talking about with these films... It, he has a, a diversification of genres. Um, uh, most of them probably fall into the drama category and are just different contexts of drama. But um, I think it's really interesting that, like you said, he does still have ties to his Australian identity, particularly all upwards of to the mid to late 80s, mm. it looks like. Um, that's when he starts to become a little bit more westernised, a little bit more... Leaning towards like Americanized. Australia, Australians are Western. <laughs> What's that? Australians because of the Western culture. Okay, but more Americanized, maybe. Right, be, yeah. Uh, well, he, well, Witness would have been his first American film. Yeah, and he definitely pushed and, into. But even with that, it's like he was a. We talked about this last week. He was a pioneer of the Australian New Wave. And it's like part of that pioneering with him and like Mel Gibson stuff was them doing American films shortly after yeah. becoming popular in international scale. But you're right. I think I think it. I like the trajectory because it 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 shows that his location, his Australianism, didn't hold him back in any way. I think I think an important thing is, and obviously you can't always go off letterbox scores or Rotten Tomato scores. But if you look at a lot of his features, most of them are leaning into the good to really positive 
um, scores. Oh, they're excellent. They're excellent. Games. Um, like he average, like he's mostly got three point fours, three point fives, and then he pushes up into the early fours, and it's like that's pretty great to have that level of consistency. Mm. Um, I think there's only one that falls under a three, um, and that's kind of blows my mind because it's like. And I think that's why I'm trying to say it's like it's great you bring up the underdog thing because he is one of those directors that is consistently quite a good director who produces really strong films and yet doesn't get as much recognition probably as he deserves. Um, See, I don't know if I buy that. Like, yeah, he's not... We don't talk about him the same way we talk about Quentin Tarantino, but he is very well respected, even if he's not maybe as popular as, as some of these American directors we talked about earlier, but he's definitely well-respected. And it's interesting because, yeah, he did, from Truman's show, he only did Master and Commander, and then he did The Way Back in 2010, and then he sort of disappeared. It doesn't look like he's done anything since, which I don't know if he just retired or... He's the Way Back alive. was his last <laughs> film in 2010. Yeah. yeah. Which is weird because it says years active on his Wikipedia, 1967 to present. But it's like, is it really present? Because he hasn't done anything in, in, in well, over a decade. He is seventy six years old. Yeah, well, um, not not to say that you you can you need to work at seventy six. That's a totally a valid reason. I'm just wondering why it's like this unspoken retirement. Like, there's nothing in here that says he officially retired in 2010. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah, you know, Robert Redford made a big deal when he did his last film. Yeah, of course. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I find that very strange. I don't know. If maybe his last couple of films didn't review as well, or... No, The Way Back got a relatively strong score. Okay. Let's see. What's the reception? I like how we're just doing this 3. on 4. the show. Isn't... Okay. 3.4. Yeah, so... well, yeah. Yeah, look, it was generally favourable reviews. That's sort of the, the consensus I'm reading here, but... It's got Ed Harris in it. You know, that's probably a good sign. <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring it up. <laughs> Literally, he... people ask, is Peter Weir retired? Yeah. Well, what's the answer? Um, what do people say? It's interesting because he does have frequent collaborators. Um, usually with actors, this is too. Where did I find this list? Oh, these are awards and nominations. I'm looking for his filmography. There we go. Um, so like Ed Harris, he's worked with twice at least. Uh, Bill Kerr, he's worked with twice. Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, he's worked with twice. So. He does... There's really no distinction. So let's hope okay. we get to see... I mean, all serious, before we get into the film of the week and we're kind of tying up the director's mm. sort of bio and, and understanding, it would be nice to see him make another film because, like we said, we've, he's got reasonably positive to super positive uh, reviews. Um, most people consider him a very strong and, and notable director. He's definitely one of the best directors that's ever come out of Australia. Um yeah, for sure. So it's kind of fascinating, yeah, to have a 10-year kind of hiatus from film, um, especially when you've got people like Clint Eastwood, who's like 94 and still directing and making mm. films. So, um, But he might have essentially just maybe he's working on something and we don't even know about it. or maybe Possibly. Uh, I, I mean, I... Maybe he's looking for his magnum opus, you know? Who uh, knows? I mean, he's, he's already had some... Pretty bang release. I don't. I mean, Depot Society is easily like one of my favorite films. I think it sits on. I think sat out on a four and a half for it for a long time. But I reckon. Um, more rewatches, the more I love it. And I think it's a real ode to a lot of people's. Uh, has very young Ethan Hawke in it. Mm. Has you know obviously one of Robin Williams' best and most memorable career moments. Uh, it's a strong story. It's a really good discussion about um, male identity in particular. 
That in uh, Gallipoli, a lot of mateship comparisons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I just... He, he is an excellent director. He's well-received or well-respected. Mm-hmm. And I think if I were him and I just stopped making films since 2010, like, yeah, I don't think we're going to see another film from him. Mm-hmm. I think it's weird that there's this sort of unspoken retirement attitude right now or that we haven't seen anything from him. But I think it's fair enough. I think he's got a great catalogue. Well, to go from 2021 to 1975, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mm. Jake, what were your thoughts? So, again, I'll preface, I watched this very recently at like 2 in the morning. That's why I was very tired. <laughs> it's I a just, creepy film to be watching I at just, 2 in the morning. It is very. It is a very creepy film. It reminded me a lot of The Virgin Suicides tonally. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Oh, dude, it's all... I seriously this, think... This eerie, I'm, fleeting feeling. I'm going to take a swing at this, but I think Sophia Coppola watched this film before making Virgin Suicides because there are shots that are identical mm. to some of the, the, the shots. Um, I, like the cover shot for Virgin Suicides, that Kirsten Dunst kind of lying and looking with that ethereal sort of presence, that's in this film. Yeah. Um. And Even, it has the same sort of weird pseudo mythic mythical Yeah, there's a there's a sort of supernatural. Um, there's yeah, supernatural. Um there's definitely like this fleeting feeling. Um yeah, supernatural. Uh, I'm trying to think of a better word for it, but you're right. Sort it's, of a beyond comprehension horror. Yeah, what's well, it's a little not afterlife. There's a, there's definitely a bit of afterlife and it's yeah, very ghostly presence in, in spots. But, um, but but what I was saying is like having watched this at two in the morning, I didn't comprehend as much as I thought. Now I don't want to sit here and be like, ah, oh, I didn't get the film. But but I kind of think that's the same thing with Virgin Suicides. I I, I think when I when I say it's kind of insurmountably or incomprehensibly horror film i mean it in the sense that there are some horrific things happening or some scary things happening but you as the viewer and have just as much uh confusion and inability to comprehend what's going on necessarily as the people in the film and that confusion is a form of horror it's a different type of horror Mm. and it's actually one i prefer more than you know giving you all the answers the fact that a lot of it is left up to viewer interpretation and to basically give us that empathetic uh point of view of people like the police officer or the boys that go and look for these girls um is very similar to virgin suicides how Mm. a lot of the story is told from the perspective of a, a bunch of young adolescent men who really just observe all these events and have no real comprehension as to why these things are happening right i think i think Virgin Suicides does that better. Oh, yeah. And it's very clear from the beginning, like, oh, this is the boys telling the story of the girls, and it's sort of this thing in reflection. This plays with it more, where it's like, well, we do see those two young guys equally as much as we see the principal's reaction, the, the I guess the gardener, or mm. what's, what's the guy's name? Like, I think it's spread out more. I mean, one in of this these film. was based off a true event, though. Virgin Suicides wasn't. Um, no, well, this this is based on a novel by Joan Lindsay, yes, but I think that was sort of intentionally vague and inferring that it was referring to a real case. I think it was a little... It was intentionally meant to be confusing, like yeah. how real any of what this is based on is, uh, which, to your point, it goes to the whole fleety confusion 
about like what is kind of going on here. And again, I, I blame the fact that I was probably just sleep deprived no, when I watched this. I watched this clear of mind and okay. so it confuses you. <laughs> okay, good. So don't worry. I thought I was really going to struggle today, but um, no, it, I did take a lot away though. I it, did. And I really like it. Like, I like this confusion and you feel like you need to be watching it more to kind of understand. Like, you're trying to piece together the reasons and the rationale. And Virgin Suicides has the same effect. And I do agree, does do it more effectively. But I do think a film like this is definitely would have been considered by Sophia Coppola in her uh, conception of right. that. Of the clear Virgin inspiration. Right. Has to be. I mean... You know, even if you just take out her context, you know, at the time, you know, her dad, Francis Ford Coppola, is at the height of his cinematic mm. sort of uh, repertoire. You know, she's well, been... Godfather Part 2 came out like a year before this did. Yeah, Apocalypse Now wasn't far off. You know, it's it, it, that's the height of his directorial mindset. And I think that obviously her being brought up on probably predominantly 60s and 70s cinema. Yeah. Um definitely would have played into her conception of of probably her best film being virgin suicide mm. so i would agree with that yeah um and i did absolutely prefer that film more um but this film definitely has a lot of the seeds that probably came to fruition and were capitalized on more yeah well just even the the visual element or the mo not motif but just the um having the girls in sort of those white flowy dresses as this sense of innocence and youth that's taken away from them. And that's sort of where that horror comes from. I mean, those two films are very comparable in that mm. sense. Um, and I even like the way this film sort of shoots that with the, with the warm hue Absolutely. and the skin tone. I know because I did nicely. do some extended reading on this one okay. too. Um, because I was equally as confused as you. So don't worry, Jack. Um, <laughs> And I did the same thing with Virgin Suicides because the best part about these types of films, and they do actually, I do think, fall into the horror genre, although not um, as overt as typical horror. And that's what I kind of like about it because it makes you want to do post-viewing uh, research. It makes you want right. to kind of, okay, I thought it was X, Y, and Z. I thought this film was kind of about, yeah, like innocence being lost and and sort of kind of has undertones of sexual curiosity and mm. uh, in it and well there's an uncomfortability to that in particular because you have i think it's albert who's like making those sexual comments about like oh the girl's legs and stuff and we feel uncomfortable because it's like we've started the film from their perspective these young innocent girls mm. who are most definitely underage so it's like there is that uncomfortable coming of age sexual side of it that's very that's touched on ever so slightly yeah, and I think it's and I and from what I read mm. in sort of the post mortem of the film was they were the kind of the ideas that the novel was trying to get across. Is the film is sort of got that undertone of of them going into the, sort of the hills is sort of an analog for yeah, um, mm. sort of that innocence lost and that sexualization and they shed clothes the further they get into these this volcanic structure. Right. Um, okay. So I, I definitely think that that was to play with it. And it kind of makes sense. Um, it makes sense. I think why I was confused or didn't immediately think to think of that, because we watched something like Under the Skin and immediately were like, we need to interpret everything we see here. Peter Weir, we, when we watch, you know, I mean, we've seen like the first third of Witness in class. We watched a huge chunk mm -hmm. of Witness. 
But then you look at Dead Poet Society, Gallipoli. These are films that play it pretty straight, as in what you see is what you get, and the themes are building based on what the characters are saying and what's happening. This film is very experimental compared to those films. Absolutely. And the the abstractness of it, of them shedding their clothes, there's not, in terms of like a real in-person motivation, there's not a lot. The film sort of conveys it as like this, it's almost like an enticing unseen force that's bringing them to the top of the rock or the mountain but when you say that it all clicks for me like oh this is it's a metaphor zig yeah <laughs> i think it just it's comes a metaphor. It, it comes back to um once again it comes back to the, some of the correlations that you have between um and they're a perfect pairing virgin suicides and this episode yeah which Virgin Suicides was our episode 90. 90, this is our very episode good. 120. 30 weeks ago. So, if you were to listen to two episodes back-to-back, those two actually do pair really well together mm. because of how many of the correlative uh, relations that both stories have. I mean, the mm. headmistress very much is the parents of the girls. Like, she embodies the same sort of... Um, horrors as her girls are you know being lost to these unseen forces unseen forces yeah. and their lives fell apart in that uh, in in virgin suicides too um and it, it's really interesting sort of the direct parallels i was kind of blown away by how much of it was because mm. it's like this film's 15 years earlier no no 24 years earlier sorry beg my wait virgin yeah 97 22 23 it might be 2000 even virgin suicides it's two decades yeah at least at least 25 years roughly um and it's like amazing to see the the relation between the two or at least what coppola's taken from films like this Mm -hmm. and i would be very surprised if she didn't watch this film like prior to be really interesting to actually look into her considerations for that film to that film because very few times can you and it's happened a couple of times on this show. We've had two films that were 20 or so years apart that are very similar in their right, relationship. Right, distinctive. No, well, um, I mean, that makes sense in terms of generational gaps. That's yeah. kind of the gap you would look at in terms of inspirations. Absolutely. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of just reminded me of Madeline a little, the girls running around with the headmistress and stuff like that. Um, but to point... This is the thing I wanted to talk about. So I, I mentioned that for Peter Weir, this is unusually experimental in terms of the abstract storytelling in terms of the ethereal storytelling you talk about and it just kind of clicked me now this is something i wanted to mention dead pot society but i'm like no this is a perfect comparison yes to the same technique used in picnic at hanging rock where in the scene in dead poet society very early on to i thought this was a very clever direction very clever is the very early cutaway when it's like cutting to the morning, the first morning of class or whatever. And all, we see like birds flocking into the sky and all these like close up shots of birds. And then it immediately cuts to all the kids flocking down the stairs in a hurry to get to their mm-hmm. class in the boarding school. I was like, oh, it's a very clever little juxtaposition, like the, the chaos of it. And I was like, this film does the same thing, but he uses crossfades. He has these shots of birds and nature and, there's a lot of inner cutting of like spiders and like frilled neck lizards and stuff like a lot, lots of nature when they walk into the rocks, but because it's all a crossfade, you have like the opacity levels change. So the girls 
are sort of in the same image and it's like fading in and out. It's the same technique of comparing and contrasting these two visuals, but because of that, it gives it that ethereal sort of creepy feeling to it. Yeah. Where, yeah. I think in this film, yeah, it's definitely trying to draw some sort of parable that humans aren't that far removed from nature or their animalistic intentions and that sort of embodies a little bit more of the sexualization intents and undertones in Mm. it. Um, Especially when there are multiple scenes where characters are found over time and they literally have lizards and stuff crawling over them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's the amalgamation of that crossfade culture and it really feels like these hills, this natural volcanic structure that was pure nature at mm. its at its force, um, are meeting sort of the these upper echelon. Particularly in this film, the they're meeting these girls who go to this boarding school, which is all about class and presentation and being yep. above the lowly commoners. I mean, that their boarding school is removed from the town that they're nearby, and I think that when they go to these hills to this volcanic structure it's it's kind of the meeting and reverse engineering of sort of what they've been taught and they kind of concave back yeah to there animalistic. is there is that sort of weird because i had the same thought of like being a very classy young women and their field trip is to like go to this random rock in like kind of not more bush it's more bush than desert mm. but yes yeah, so i kind of noticed that too i thought that was quite funny but you're right it's it's an intentional sort of mix match mm-hmm. between the location and and the girls and there's something so australian about like the film being revolved around this sort mm. of landmark i mean we look at dog rock and alp is it albany that's where dog rock is I think uh, so, yeah. we have our own like little landmarks around australia like, like granite this... granite hill too yeah yeah like um, giant rock yeah it's uh, this is something that feels so right mm. about about that i don't know but and to your point of um like the animals sort of being representative of like this sexual inner desire or that we're not so far removed. I saw it as when they walk into the, and we we see the koala and the bugs and all of that. I saw it as they're entering this territory that's not theirs anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're almost giving themselves up to this rock. And you're right. It's very metaphoric. And I think the film clicks more when I think of it in that way. Um, I love... I'm going to specifically mention this because you did not like the music whatsoever of Gallipoli. But I love the music in this. Yeah, I was going to say, music's excellent. Yeah, this. music's great in this. I just It was the one thing in Gallipoli that didn't make any sense to me because he <laughs> seems to be so good at... Considering all of his other films, never has this, never has like. this problem from the, what, the five, five I've seen. I've never distinctly been like, Ah, uh, this music. The music made sense in this one. It was haunting. It was kind of yeah. creepy. Even the the intro as they move through and they slowly introduce our main cast. It's it's kind of creepy. They and, sort of have this whimsical flute, mm. but then like the underneath of that is you're right. It's very eerie and creepy and porcelain and it, doll creepy. Right, kind of like <laughs> what I was thinking. Um, they kind of look like porcelain dolls in a way. All the, the I think dresses. There's a reason and, for that yeah, too. Yeah, um, yeah. and. Yeah, it definitely adds to that eerie, creepy vibe and it keeps it throughout. And you kind of feel... You don't know why you feel a little icky watching it, but you do feel a little icky watching it. Yeah. Um, well, part of it, it's not even just the score. It's like the underlying buzzes and like this sort of... Oh, what's the sound I'm thinking of? But like when they're walking towards the rock, there's these sort of like hums 
let's play it under the soundtrack and it just makes you so uneven because it's like is that motivated is that diegetic you cannot tell and it just adds to that creepy factor yeah no i i definitely um it was nice having a film that was so kind of distinct mm. to a lot of his other films because i think his films are for the most part relatively optimistic films yeah, they're um, nice coming of age stories, and well, maybe not. Like they have, they so have much. really dark moments, and they all do. I mean, yeah. Dead Poets Society has one. Gallipoli. Yeah, obviously. I did not expect that at all. In Innocence Lost is definitely a recurring theme of his earlier works. Right. Um, from this film into Gallipoli into post eighties, he starts to evolve, uh, change a little bit. I think, but I guess you could argue Truman Show is also about Innocence Lost um too yeah because absolutely. truman is is yeah losing that innocence of the world doesn't revolve around him exactly um, and Woo-hoo, you should write some movie poster taglines <laughs> <laughs> should probably take the time and write a couple of essays more yeah than anything, yeah, yeah but um and then probably even to a degree in master and commando there's there's that essence with the younger sailors so Maybe it's a recurring theme. Maybe it was just something for 25 years he didn't quite get his head around losing his innocence. I don't know. Um, <laughs> had to uh, figure it out each time. <laughs> young, young 76-year-old man now. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think um, that's probably a very common recurring theme. He's just done different ways of presenting it. Um, yeah. You know, in this, it was, it was more... Uh, insurmountable incomprehensible it was was man versus nature in a way or woman versus nature in this Mm. in this way and then if you push into gallipoli it was you know it was the context of a wartime that led to the the naivete of uh soldiers of a young man and the same thing actually correlates directly i think gallipoli and and dead poet society are very good pairings because they tackle that naivete of young manhood just in different ways, one in art and one in wartime. Yeah. Who, you know, those things often actually do go hand in hand or have a correlative relationship. And, um, yeah, I think uh, it's it's interesting. He's a very fascinating director, very entertaining director too, very engaging. Oh, finds yeah. a way to, finds different ways to engage you, whether it be the writing or what he does with the camera, or what he does with the edit, or what he does with the music. Yeah, I said it last week, and I'm going to say it again for all of his films. There's something about them that all, that all feels so classic, and I hate saying that because it feels so broad and, and undefined, but what I mean by that is you're right. There's just a Hollywood-level engagement. When you watch, like, E.T., this is something about E.T. Yeah. as, like, I, this classically told tale about youth totally and growing don't. up and... All of his films have that quality where you just love to watch them. You love the characters. Yeah, especially, I'd say, from Gallipoli onwards, definitely have that sort of effect of it just feels like I could... I was like, you know, we're talking here and I honestly feel compelled to watch Gallipoli again. Like, mm. because of how... Or Dead Poet Society <laughs> or Truman Show. I was thinking that, man, I really should have watched Truman Show before this episode again because it's just... It's such a great film to watch brilliant yeah i mean it's probably my second favorite jim carrey performance um that's high praise because i know what your first one is yeah (laughs) it's one of your favorite films of all time um and it's yeah so honestly it's it's really interesting to um have that sort of like engagement how he holds the viewer's attention in different ways every time yeah yeah 
and still really emotionally really finds ways even in in some of his more uh, on the surface appear to be lighter heart films i mean still hits you with some incredibly deep and heavy moments um you know like dead poet society never most people never talk about the darker parts of that film they always talk about the the lighter moments and yeah, and you kind of forget how dark that film gets. Same thing with stage. Truman Show too. I mean, Truman yeah. Show. They, it's very easy because that was you know the height of kind of Jim Carrey absurdity humor, right? Too, which um, so for him to do a film that still had the Jim Carrey isms that he normally carried, but then to have the the heavier tones in it, and yeah, because that film takes that concept, which you could totally just make a comedy. I mean, you look at Bruce Almighty. Like, oh, look, he's God and he has all these powers. And that film has, like, its sort of darker, somber moments too, but not to the extent where Truman shows, like, we're really going to show you how messed up the, this concept is. Yeah. It's not just fun and games. This is horrible and yeah. does things to people. It messes with their head. So I appreciate that Peter Weir goes to the extent, like, they, he takes those ideas. Dead Poet Society, you don't expect how dark that film can get at certain points. And, it, and that, was goes big, that was a big turning point for Robin Williams's career too. Yeah. Because at that point he had only been in kind of really lighthearted roles that com like commended his, his comedic abilities. And you would say, like I said, what we just talked about with Truman show, same thing with Jim Carrey at that point, only been in really kind of lighthearted, silly uh, roles because you know, hey, they're both stand-up comedians. They can only yeah. do comedic roles, and it's like no. Ace Ventura, Liar Liar films like that. Yeah, and, it, and Robin Williams had only been like Hook, and you know that show where he plays an alien, Mork, Mork. That's it. Um, Mork. You know, uh, and the closest he got prior to Dead Poets Society was Good Morning Vietnam, which did admittedly push the serious, but he still had a lot of his sort of Robin Williams. Yeah, well, even in Dead Poets Society, like he's still his charm as a teacher that shines through. But what I like in Dead Poets Society, it really culminates with um, he doesn't go absurd, absurd. No, he doesn't go to those same genie, genie, good morning Vietnam, like like he's projecting like he's on a stage and he's doing a stand up routine. No, no, he actually is quite soft and quiet and charming. Well, through, through those films, he's slowly getting more subdued and more controlled with his humor. And then I was gonna say it, it all combinates with Good Will Hunting, Hunting, yeah, which that's like his ultimate like pulled back performance. Yeah, and then the, uh, when he finally got to Good Will Hunting, he was able to then move into okay, I'm going to do roles where I'm completely serious. You know, then goes into the Insomnias, where he's playing oh my a God, serial yeah. that killer. That even goes further in, yeah. Um, you know, but that was like definitely the transitional point for him. And same thing happened with Truman Show. Jim Carrey, we were like, oh, we he can actually do some serious stuff. And then he pushes into, eventually a couple of years later, into Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, yeah. Where it's his best performance. <laughs> do not argue with me. Even his Andy Kaufman, like, yeah, you know, biopic too. Yeah. So I, I think it, these are all really this director had residual impact on actors' careers, and that has to be commended for him. I mean... I was going to say, thank you, Peter Weir, for... Yeah, but it's like in this, it's Jackie Weaver's in this. Yes, she is. She plays Minnie, who I'm guessing is just one of the students. Uh, Let me actually see quickly. And it's like, you know, it's like, you know, and if you go all the way back to, like, episode 44, it's like we talk about how great Jackie Weaver was in Animal Kingdom. Jeez, really? 44? Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, no, you're right. And then, yeah, we did Shaun of the Dead after that. See, now I'm like... Um, you're reminiscing. I'm reminiscing on our own show. <laughs> um, um, so it's like, 
you know, he does it. And of course, Gallipoli, we don't even have to touch with Mel Gibson, what happened with him. Yep. Um, you know, he, he really, he has ways of, of kind of getting to these actors and pushing them into more, pushing them more towards their serial, uh, like their serious actor roles. Yep. Their, their, their roles that start to give them a platform. And I think that that's really impressive. Mm. And, um, you know, Obviously, in his latter career, he was more just complimenting actors because obviously by the time, you know, he did The Way Back, Ed Harris, he'd already been with him in Truman Show and stuff. So I want to see one more film from him. Can we get one more <laughs> Peter Weir film? You could, you could send him a, a letter. Yeah. You could physically write a letter and send it to him. <laughs> so, yeah, before... He's, he's such an excellent director. Before we move on, um, there's a few things. And I think... I was going to say this, and I think it's we kind of said it without saying it. Yeah. Is that the first 35 minutes of this film is infinitely more interesting than the rest of the film. At least I found it so. And I know the idea of the film, the premise, and it, it's, you know, the film opens up with the text that says on February 1st, 1900, you know, um, these four girls disappear. Like, that's the premise. But the other half of the premise is the reaction to it. How do the people around town, how does the boarding school, how do mm. the other students and teachers react to this? What's their reaction to the missing girls? And I'm going to be honest, I just, I found that aspect of the story infinitely less boring. Mm. And it's probably because it's less ethereal and less sort of creepy and, and supernaturalistic in a way. Um, yeah, but that was the other but, side of the fence in like things like Virgin Suicides. It's like people mm. couldn't comprehend what was happening with that family of seven seven girls or seven girls it was four daughters four daughters sorry and the james woods and the wife <laughs> i four remember james woods <laughs> okay it's the same but, thing but that was... they're in the story more though like they're in the story through to the end at least most of them are mm. and um for here correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure most of the girls we don't really ever see again after the disappearance i know we find one of them we find one of them that's true. And then I think it just yeah, yeah it's you're you're hundred percent right. Um it definitely was the residual impact of this small community not being able to figure out what happened and it's sort of mm. slowly affecting each of them. But it wasn't just the girls, it was the teacher too. It was right. one of the teachers that disappeared. Yeah, it was a teacher in three doors. Sorry, I was literally skimming the plot because I remembered the scene distinctly where all the girls they get hysterical and abused. Like, what happened? What happened? What happened? And I, for some reason, I thought my mind blanked when I was watching the film. I was like, did mm. they find a second girl? Mm. So I was skimming through the plot. It's her. It's the it's the one and only yeah. girl they find. But it, I, I do find that stuff quite interesting, particularly with the police officer kind of following around and exploring mm. and kind of being incredibly overwhelmed by the whole situation because he can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. And it sort of turns into a bit of a, a media public event to try and find these girls by the end of the yeah not and definitely and it's important that this does place take place in 1900 because it's not the gone girl effect where she's on tv and accusations being thrown around like this is a very subdued community group think absolutely with the occasional picture in a newspaper but otherwise it's all very like small community discussion this mm. is a national news for example um at least as far as we can tell within the constraints of the story yeah absolutely. i wanted to specifically ask about albert and i think michael the two boys who i think it's michael who be, kind of becomes obsessed with trying to find her and wants to sleep at the rock was this sort of 
was this another example of like this higher being forcing him to into this mentality or yeah. him just yeah and i think it comes back to it's all that phallic um the sort of phallic ideologies coming through there he's a young man who mm. who becomes kind of obsessed with these girls and he all he did was glance at them as they crossed the river really that was it and yeah. that's what's led to this uh, that is very virgin suicides right there it's led to this so. weird fascination and drive to find them and he you know only saw them at a glance and yeah it is a very virgin suicides and how he pitches in his head and they talk about these nightmares or these these visions they're having when they're dreaming mm. which comes back to the kind of weird supernatural ethereal um body kind of enabling this sexualization and this drive in these young young men which i yep. find fascinating and kind of really nails home the fact that this film is sort of just kind of an allegory for all of that um, yeah because I'll yeah, buy that, yeah. He, he drives him to the point of delirium because by the time uh, the other uh, gentleman finds them uh it's albert albert yeah um he can barely speak right yeah. and all he presents is a scrap of their clothing from their garments well and even so him just entering that like that crack in the rock like it's it's a physical like nightmare it's, it, it, he physically can barely do it like yeah. he's pushing against something that we can't see as the audience yeah. it's really interesting and fascinating and i do like your idea of them sort of shedding the clothes as they go further in and sort of this fate mm-hmm. um yeah the one thing i wanted to mention i just remembered that i'm surprised i didn't write this down because i remember having a problem with it so the very ending, we have Mrs. Um, oh wait, is it who? Who? Sorry, I'm getting all these names mixed up again. Um, oh, it's Mrs. Appleyard. Yeah, so Mrs. Appleyard, sort of mm-hmm. in the, the the black gown at the end, yep. and that turn to the camera, like excellent, excellent, creepy note to end mm-hmm. on. And then a little voiceover comes in, and it's a like, police officer. Same. Well, yeah, but it's like, oh, we searched for another four months and continued to find nothing. I was like, you didn't need that. Come on, you didn't like it. You didn't need the voice. Like, really? Well, she commits suicide. Well, she. Well, supposed- yeah, but like you end on that note of her face mm. of like, oh wow, look how calm she is. Oh God, did she dot 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 cut to black? But no, you get that Bit voice. Of memory, over and memories get- a murder ending. Yeah, well, why not? You know, and then have they did have sort of that pan across with all the schoolgirls. Um, sort of that last moment before yeah. they all disappeared. And I get what they were going for. I did watch a quick video before I went to bed on uh, some of the, the lost ending. There is like an additional scene at the end that they did cut oh, okay. of her actually going to the rock. Um, and they decided it was too much. They were explaining too much. I still think it was a, a teeny tiny bit too much what actually ended up in the ending. But the idea of that pan of the girls is sort of that last like, that fleeting feeling of man, I wish we could go back and just change things, mm-hmm. which I which I like. And the girl like sort of batting away a fly that apparently a critic thought was like doing the cross, like a little final thing. And Peter Weir's like, no, no, she was just swatting a fly away. <laughs> so you want to move into highlight scenes? Yeah, sure. So um, I struggled to pick a highlight scene. I'm gonna go with the me- the scene I mentioned where all the girls are like desperately clawing. At, um, I want to get her name. The the girl that they do end up finding, who loses her corset. Um, let's see. Oh, there's Sarah strapped to the wall, but that's not hair. Um, sorry, everyone. 
uh, Omar, I think it's Omar, mm-hmm. visits her classmates for the final time. They become hysterical and demand to know what happened to Miranda and Marilyn. Uh, yeah, so I love that scene because it honestly just reminds me of Midsommar and sort of the, the collective... Still got to watch Midsommar. You got it, man. It's so good. And it, it reminds me of the collective feminine grief that all these girls are sharing. And I don't know, there's something really awful about it <laughs> that I like because I messed in the head. What was your highlight scene? <laughs> probably probably when um, uh, Michael goes to the rock and sort oh, of that, yeah. that, how that plays out. And, and planting really a little paper trail. Yeah, and it really yeah. confirms that there's something not quite right here um, and sort of really confirms the uh, supernatural elements. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Cool. No worries. Well, Picnic at Hanging Rock is currently out on DVDs. Believe yep. it or not, I watched this on YouTube. I did, I did too, but it actually has since been taken down. Okay, there we so go. we had a very small window to watch it. But yes, you can get it on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, you can, if you understand Italian, then you can watch it on YouTube still. That version has been taken down, there you but go. <laughs> very little, easy to find. This little film. snag that one, but yeah, yeah pr- definitely go out and watch it on wide, uh, on DVD. Yeah, I'm gonna buy it on Blu-ray probably this week there you go well speaking (laughs) of what's new what's new in cinemas and streaming platforms this week pretty light week zeke this week coming to stan is the i am greta and conor mcgregor notorious documentaries i really love the greta one if you want to watch that even despite what your politics are on her Uh, coming to netflix this week is monster which is not the monster you're thinking of it's a sundance film all the way back from january of 2018 and sees a smart, likable 17-year-old film student from Harlem face a complex legal battle after being charged with murder. Whew. That was a that was a bit of a turn, wasn't it? And uh, coming to cinemas is the Australian film June Again, which is a heartfelt comedy that sees the titch of the character June Winton spend what precious time she has left before losing her mind to dementia, bringing together her estranged children, saving the family business, and rekindling an old flame. A lot of dementia stories coming. coming yeah, I'm a bit over them now. <laughs> you've had enough of them yeah i'm a bit sad sad yeah. now i mean this one's probably that like bleh, gross sweet sort of Mm-mm. combination I'm I'm you know, like that yeah, well that mm. very light week as i said which is fair enough no worries well jake it is time for us to talk about the next Ooh. film we're going to do but we have decided this is our second ever i guess second annual I guess so now, yeah. It is officially annual now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, countdown through the decades retrospective. Woo! Um, so if you remember this last year on the show, we obviously had a period and just so happened to coincide with the lockdown, which was pretty handy for us. Um, yeah. Well, you pitched this idea to me long before COVID became a thing. So yeah. it sort of it became a, this is the perfect opportunity to do that moment. Uh, in which we allow you guys to vote on two films that we pick from each decade and whichever gets the highest vote between both our Instagram handles, which is at ZKMH. Jake the Clicker. Um, we do that film review. And obviously we actually chose the 2020 film last year, hence because it was 2020, and we actually created a poll this time around to do... Yeah, this the is 20. the first time we've done a poll for the 2020s pick. So basically it's just uh, for the next... I think now it's 11 weeks, technically, or is it 10 weeks? I think it's 10 weeks. I think it's still 10, because we're going from the 2020s 20s. to the 1930s. So for the next 10. Yeah, so for the next 10 weeks, we're going to do each decade and go through them, and we'll be covering a couple of director's corners. We've already lined up all 
our nominations for those. Yeah, we have. And if you've missed it, we've already done our poll and found our winner for the 2020s film. But Jake, what are we watching? Next week in the show, Z, we're watching Dick Johnson is Dead. Just the idea that I might ever lose this man is too much to bear. He's my dad. Let's start walking. Just start walking to me. That's fantastic. I suggested we make a movie about him dying. (laughs) He said yes. She kills me multiple times. Action! Resurrected dad. Yeah, resurrected dad. As her father nears the end of his life, filmmaker Kirsten Johnson stages his death in inventive and comical ways to help them both face the inevitable. Now, Zeke, this one, it was a pretty close race between this and Shiver Baby Mm -hmm. between our two Instagram handles, 12 to 9. Yeah. So we obviously thought this one because it's being the first one and being the 2020 film is going to be a tougher one to get votes on. Um, but we are happy with who voted for this uh, one. I, don't, I, don't, it's like I had 121 people open up my story and only like eight of them voted, if that. Yeah, because a lot of people, um, will, dis- they don't know it. That's the thing. So. You wait, you wait. We'll get to the... We'll get to the, we'll the get 80s to the, and the 70s. And suddenly, because I remember that happened last year too. It's like, I think the X Machina under the skin vote wasn't too many. And then by the time we got to the... I think whatever the the nineties was, it was it started going train spotting, train Jurassic spotting. Park and yeah. stuff. Well, that stuff got through the roof, yeah. So that's fair enough. Um, I didn't expect too many, but I'm happy with the ones we got. Um, yeah, yeah. only like my super deep, like super into film friends voted for Shiver Baby. <laughs> to be fair, I didn't know what Shiver Baby was up until about two weeks ago. Oh, so, fair enough. Um, yeah. I'm oh, probably still gonna watch it anyway in the next week, just because I really want to see it. That's regardless. fair enough. <laughs> but until then thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast I was Zeke I was Jake we'll catch you next week with Dick Johnson is dead ow I'm dead ow ow <laughs> <laughs>